The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was born in Newark, New Jersey in November of 1871, the tail end of the 19th century, and he died so young, just 28 years old, that he barely made it into the 20th, dying in June of 1900. And yet, he managed to dominate that century through works like Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, the short stories The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky, and The Open Boat, and The Blue Hotel, and especially his novel The Red Badge of Courage, the story of the Civil War which remained a perennial favorite on high school syllabi throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. Stephen Crane, Literary Comet, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad you're here. Let's go straight at them. Never mind the maneuvers. First... We'll start with a thank you to one of our number one countries, and then we will have a biographer of Stephen Crane here. I'll give you a thumbnail sketch of Crane's life. He was kind of a bad boy of American letters, a quick rise to the top, maybe the Leo DiCaprio of his era, except that he died young. A Rimbaud of his era, who, of course, Rimbaud didn't die young, but flamed out. A Kurt Cobain of his era and chosen field. How about that? A Jim Morrison, a Jimi Hendrix. He was 28 when he died, three years older than Keats, two years younger than Plath, one year older than Cobain, Morrison, Hendrix, Janis Joplin, who all died at 27. My goodness. Okay, happier note. We are thanking the number one book countries who have made us in their home country. What did I just say? <laughs> My producer has his hands on his neck as if he's planning to choke me. He's finally doing me in, exasperated and violent. He's gotten, what did I say, number one book country? <laughs> number one books podcast in their home country. That's what I meant. Let's start over. We are thanking the countries who have made us the number one book podcast in their home country. Last time we thanked Ecuador. So this time, oh, ooh. Today's country is one we can only touch upon. This would be a whole episode. Israel. Thank you, Israel, for making us the number one books podcast at some point, according to Chartable and Apple Podcasts. What an honor. I've heard from many HOL listeners in Israel over the years. Such an intelligent and lively group. So thank you very much for being the 13th country, or at least the 13th one we've mentioned and thanked. Number one, it's a good place to be. As George Harrison said, if you're going to be in a band, you might as well be in the Beatles. <laughs> well, if you're going to be on a chart, you might as well be at the top. If we're taking numbers, why not one? I'll take one and you can have the rest. Except zero. Soft spot in my heart for zero and one million. Let me keep that one, too. Speaking of one, what's the good joke? <laughs> I heard a good joke the other day. Oh, 
from Rodney Dangerfield. One of my faves. He said, what was it? He said, I asked my wife. No, he said, he said, oh, I asked my wife, am I the only one? And she said, yeah, all the rest have been nines and tens. <laughs> oh, Rodney. Okay, moving on. Stephen Crane was the youngest of 14 children. His father was a Methodist minister who died when Stephen was a boy. His mother took over the child raising with some help from boarding schools for the kids. Stephen found a taste for the seamier side of life at a young age, traipsing through the famous slums of Manhattan's Bowery, finding how people lived on those streets and in those bordellos. He was broke a lot. This was the 1880s and especially the 1890s, a great time period to be a bohemian somehow. He began freelancing, writing journalism, and he had a great sensitivity to people and their language, to the elements as well, to nature, and he fused both his insights into his, uh, he fused both, let's say, he fused his insights that he had into personality and motive and his descriptions of nature, and he, used, he melded all that into his prose style that was all his own and highly influential. He was successful at a young age. By the time he was crossing the threshold of 25, he was already world famous for the Red Badge of Courage and some of his other writings. An Impressionistic Study, that book is often called, which brings to mind one of the other great movements of the era, the Impressionistic Paintings and Painters. We'll explore that more with our guests, see if that's really an affinity or if that's just more coincidental. Stephen Crane wound up obsessed with war and death and danger, fear and courage. He went to Cuba as a war correspondent and Greece too, I guess. But it was in Cuba that he wound up on a shipwreck and barely surviving on a lifeboat. It was in between Florida and Cuba when that happened. His last couple of years were spent in England where he befriended some literary luminaries who admired him greatly, both his writing itself and his person, his importance to literature, Ford Maddox Ford, Henry James, H.G. Wells, and Joseph Conrad were all in his orbit. It's a brief but very eventful life. I left out some famous and sensational court cases and much of the writing too, but that's because we have with us today an expert, Linda H. Davis, who, as the New York Times says, has written an impressive biography with many fascinating facts about Crane's rough-and-tumble career, series of romantic liaisons and adventurous writing, end quote. The American scholar gives the best praise of all for a literary biography, quote, it's not only a complete and engaging account of Crane's brief life, but also a compelling invitation to reread his work, end quote. You can't do better than that. Linda H. Davis has also written biographies of Charles Adams, the cartoonist whom you might know as the originator of the Adams Family, and Catherine S. White, a great editor for The New Yorker for many years, who was married to one famous writer, E.B. White, great writer, and who was the mother of another great writer, maybe not quite so famous, but still great, Roger Angel. 
But her story is fascinating, too. And although E.B. is kind of a legend, he's probably the most famous of those three, thanks in part to Charlotte's Web, the perennial children's classic. Catherine was a great literary figure of the 20th century, editing many, many famous writers and pieces in that august magazine. Okay, speaking of august and famous writers, Linda H. Davis, to tell us all about Stephen Crane after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Linda H. Davis, author of a new biography called Badge of Courage, The Life of Stephen Crane, which promises to tell the story of a poet and novelist who loved women and truth at any cost. Linda H. Davis, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. I'm pleased to be here. Okay, so Stephen Crane died at 28, and yet in that short life, it was he, he really filled it with a lot of events and a lot of writing. Your book is, I guess, 300 or so pages, but I'm guessing you didn't have a problem filling the space. No, not at all. Yeah. Was there a lot that you had to leave out, or did you feel like you were able to cover the, the things that you wanted to cover? I did not think there was a lot I had to leave out, mm -hmm. because his life was so rich and full and so dramatic. Yeah. Un, which is unusual for a writer, of course, right. because writers spend a lot of time alone in a room. Yeah, right. He was traveling. He had adventures. He had court cases. He was meeting famous people. It, it really is kind of astonishing how, at such a young age, he was able to get around as much as he did. But why don't we back up a little bit and start with you? And I'm interested in your first encounter with the writings of Stephen Crane. Well, oddly enough, it wasn't until I was in my 30s, mm. I think mid-30s or maybe a little beyond that, that I ever read him. And I was an English major, got a master's in English. He wasn't on the curriculum mm -hmm. anywhere, even his short stories. But I was struggling to find a subject for a second biography. 
And somehow I happened upon Crane's great novella, The Monster, oh. which, which is about a man who saves the life of a child in a fire at terrible cost. He is a man without a face after that. Mm. And it really had a visceral reaction on me because as a child of about the age of the little boy in the story, I too survived a fire, mm. a house fire, which killed my father. Oh, Henry Johnson dear. in the book was, was not killed. Yeah. And my experience was so much like that of the little boy's. I was frozen with fear in my bed until someone came to save me. And I thought, who is Stephen Crane that he can write that way about a fire? That's yeah. what got me going. That was wow. the first thing I read. Wow. I'm wondering, that's interesting because a lot of people probably have the experience where I'm guessing a lot of people who were in combat are handed Stephen Crane and, and feel like, who was able to write this experience of the civil war, you know, in battle and the fear of a soldier. And it turns out that when he wrote that, he hadn't yet been in combat or hadn't seen battle, but had been able to channel it. So did you find that he had been in a fire or was this another example of Stephen Crane being able to inhabit a mindset that he had not personally experienced? Good question. No, he was not in a fire. Hmm. But like all great fiction writers, he had a, a truly fictional imagination. He yeah. did draw on experiences in his for his, his fiction, of mm-hmm. course. I think that he did write some other things involving a fire. There was a story he wrote in later years called Manacled about a writer, I sorry, about an actor on the stage who is manacled he's in cuffs and a fire breaks out in the theater and he's forgotten Mm -hmm. and for that piece he actually had his common law wife and niece tie him up so he could write the story but he didn't have to literally experience things before he wrote about them he often tried to but he was the son of an old-time Methodist minister, mm-hmm. fire and brimstone, and he was taken to these revival meetings as a very little boy was badly frightened at the age of two when the minister who was speaking preached about the lake of fire and all the fire and brimstone stuff. Mm. And so there was a lot of fire imagery in yeah. his writing, even in places where you would not expect it. Right. And after you encountered the story and went out to learn more about him, were you exploring more of his fiction or reading biographies that I know there have been a few that have been out there, although they're somewhat outdated now, but what were you finding when you went out to see who Stephen Crane was? It wasn't a matter. I didn't read a great deal of his work before I decided to write a biography. Mm-hmm. What prompted me to write it was that there hadn't been a really accurate biography. Oh, right. An earlier biographer, I should say biographer in quotes, Thomas yeah. Beer, just made up a lot of stuff. Yeah. And then if it's in a book, then then the subsequent biographers will cite it because they assume that, you know, you don't assume that it's all a bunch of fiction. No, others 
kept repeating <laughs> this misinformation. But thanks to two outstanding Crane scholars, Paul Sorrentino and Stanley Wertheim, a lot of that had been corrected. And they, they had put out a new book of Crane's letters that involved more letters than had been published before and much more accurate and something called the Crane Log, which was a chronology of his life and writings that were relevant which corrected a great deal of the information. I, I don't think I could have done it without their work. Mm. So as a result of the monster and my feeling about him and the inaccurate biographies, which had since been corrected, but not in a biography, I decided just to go full speed yeah. and write a biography. And at that point, had you written your biography of Charles Adams or Catherine S. White? It sounds like you had written at least one of those. I had written about Catherine White. She was my first victim, as I like yeah. to say, but, <laughs> but not Charles Adams. He, was, he came after Oh, he her. came after her. Okay. So how, before we leave that topic, how did writing about Crane compare with those two biographies in terms of materials or subject matter available to you? Great question. Crane's life was so dramatic, mm. so physically dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, people do tend to romanticize someone who dies young. I was not doing that. But his, his life, which ended at the age of 28, was filled with action, shipwreck, which yeah. became the basis of his classic short story, The Open Boat war reporting. He reported years after he wrote The Red Badge. As you correctly said, he had not experienced a war when he wrote that. He reported on the Spanish-American War. He got in trouble with the New York Police Department, of which Theodore Roosevelt was police commissioner at the time when he testified against a very crooked cop, I should say, in New York, who falsely arrested a prostitute who was not prostituting at the time he arrested her. And he came to know some of the most popular writers and prominent writers of his time when he lived in England. He had to live in exile, really. Yeah. And he had a rather interesting, dramatic life. Yeah. So it was just packed. Most writers don't live that fully if they live a very long life, but right. he did. So, and the other two were more character studies. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's challenging too, in a different way, maybe more challenging. Yeah, right. So for Crane, where did he, I mean, we mentioned fire. Another really common trope for him is death. And I'm wondering, can we trace that back to his childhood as well? Death? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was the last of 14 children in yeah. this family. Right. His mother was, I think, I think his mother was 45 when she had him. That's right. Mm. And the, his father was, I think, 52. Mm -hmm. And five children had died before him. Yeah. And, of course, we didn't have all the medical treatments that we have now. There was no cure for... TB, which he ultimately died of. There was no cure. It was the great 19th century disease. And people just died of all kinds of things. So it yeah. wasn't just in his family. It was all around him. Yeah. And they died 
not only did they die, it seems like they knew it was coming. Like he suffered from a cough. He had a, it's not as if it strikes one down if you feel healthy all your life and then it strikes you down suddenly at 28. It seems like with along with writers like Keats, they sort of know that it's coming for years. It's it's like a shadow that hangs over them. Is that something we see with Crane as well? I believe so. Mm-hmm. In fact, one thing that is very different in my biography from the previous ones is the theory that Stephen Crane knew from the time he was a child. He had good reason to believe that he was going to die young. Mm. And I think he thought it was TB. And one of the reasons he took so many risks in his life, it was not just because he was utterly dedicated to his craft, but because he was absolutely certain that he didn't have time. So he wanted to pack it in and experience everything he could while he was here. Yeah. And I wonder, I read that his, I think the four children born directly before him died young and or died in childbirth, maybe. And it just seems like it must have haunted his mother to to feel like, and his father too, I suppose, that to feel like, uh, on the one hand, he's a miracle that he's surviving, but on the other hand, maybe don't get too attached, or maybe they're still grieving for these children that they just lost one after the other. It's it's almost unimaginable to me. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't unimaginable in those days. Right, right. A lot of a lot of babies and children died because we we didn't have modern medicine then. But yes, they they called him our precious baby. And there was a time, I think he was about two years old. They took him away somewhere because they thought he needed a change of climate, which is another thing that suggests TB, of course. Mm -hmm. A lot of things do. I think they were devastated, even though they had so many children. They loved their children. They were loving parents, as far as I could tell. So, yes, I agree with you. And then his father died when he was only eight. Yeah, same age I was when my father died, actually. Right. Okay, so before we leave uh, his childhood, let's talk about him as a boy. I know he was a a precocious early reader, and he started writing stories early, but what was he like? Was he he sickly and, and kind of in bed, or was he out and showing signs of the restlessness and taste for the seamier side of life that he would later show? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was a very precocious child. Mm-hmm. He was uh, trying to read. He taught himself to read before the age of four. He was trying to write at three, wrote a poem that is quite charming at six and a story that is lost to us at the age of eight. He was also a bit of a devil. Mm. He was uh, smoking cigarettes at the age of six, which didn't help his health drinking, or at least had one beer around the same time, getting into all sorts of trouble. And that was partly because his father had died and his mother finally had a chance to do some work and things for herself. And he wasn't supervised enough. Right. So he would run around the neighborhood. I was just going to say his siblings were probably influential, but that's not quite the same as having a parent who's a little, maybe a little more of a disciplinarian if he has a a sibling who's 15 years older or something like that. True. He he was sometimes in the care of an older sibling, but 
he still did a lot of running around the neighborhood and seeing what he could get into. Mm. Okay, and then he went, he wound up at a military school, and I understand that this was maybe his his first experience really knowing fear, or an, an influential one, maybe not the first, but... Yeah, it certainly wasn't the first, but I actually begin my biography of him with this incident when he was at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. There were a group of fraternity hazers mm. who were doing a lot of scaring and damage. Yeah. Actually, one had been seriously injured by a baseball bat wielded by somebody other than Crane. And they were coming for Crane. They pounded on his door and they burst into the room. Crane was quivering in the corner, holding a loaded revolver. Oh, and he fainted. Oh, my God. Which is, to me, perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Oh. And I think, actually, that was helpful to him later on because he, he certainly didn't want to pass out from fear. Yeah. But he, yes, he knew that. I don't know where he got the revolver, but it probably wasn't too hard to get one in those days. It's certainly not hard to get one now. Yeah. And he later, he seems to have controlled his external reaction or his external signs of fear that he later, I was reading, he even though he was very afraid, the people around him thought that he was very calm and collected, that he seems to have been able to stop the quiver and control his facial expressions and so on. That's true. He did learn to control it. It's not as though the fear ever went away. And he wrote about it a number of times in his war reporting. But he was able to master himself so that it didn't show. And he did look very cool, literally under fire in, mm. in the Spanish-American War, for instance. Okay. And that was just supreme discipline and self-control on his part. So although he had this religious upbringing of a sort, he seemed to have turned away from it and seems to have felt like religion was, was uh, there was a hypocrisy there that he objected to. And he also had this, this compulsion, I guess, or something was drawing him to visiting slums and brothels and this life on the streets. Is that something you saw when he went to college, or when did that begin, and what do you think was, was driving him toward that? He may have started doing that when he was a reporter for a local paper when he was a student at Syracuse University. Mm -hmm. And because he was always trying to get at the real thing. The truth. And then that, that continued later when he was finished with college and he was living in New York. He seriously risked his health by standing in extreme cold, terribly underdressed in a bread line, yeah. uh, sleeping in a flop house because he wanted to know how it felt. Yeah. And, he's... and given his frail health and his size, he, he literally risked his life doing that. Right. And he seems like the sort of person who would say there's more truth there in the breadline than you would find by going to a city and visiting a, a museum, for example. That's exactly right. And he wanted to get at the truth. He wanted to write as well as he could, but he felt that he needed to get down and dirty, literally and physically. 
to get at the real thing. Okay, so let's talk next about his career as a writer, but let's take a quick break first. We will be back with Linda H. Davis after this. back with Linda H. Davis, biographer of Stephen Crane. Linda, I know Crane is famous for his poetry as well as his prose, and it's tempting to say that he was a, a poetic writer of prose. He certainly is very vivid and imaginative, but it, as we were talking about before the break, it almost seems like he wasn't concerned so much with art or trying to develop art for art's sake, but that his style was part of his search for truth that led him toward this prose style. Is that, am I off base in thinking that, or do you think that his impressionistic style and kind of the vividity of the images and so on is part of this desire to make the reader see or to feel something? I do. I think you're exactly right. I also think his style, which is very chromatic and is filled with imagery, religious imagery Mm. and color. It really did come in large part from his religious upbringing and the trauma and the fear. I mean, when somebody is preaching hell and damnation and his talk is filled with imagery about the lake of fire, that, that the impression on a young mind like Stephen Crane's was barely out of babyhood is profound. I think it was very traumatizing for him. So he was working out a lot of that and that that led to, in in part anyway, of course, genius and the unexplainable things are also at work, but I think it in part led to that style of writing Mm -hmm. and the poetry in his prose. Yeah. What were his earliest stories about? His earliest stories, you mean fiction, right? Yeah. We don't know really in childhood what he was writing about, but his earliest stories, and they were not fully developed short stories by any means, had to do with, they were the, what is known as Sullivan County Tales, Mm. and Mm -hmm. came out of his time hiking and camping and exploring the woods with friends. And the pervading theme is that man is alone in the universe. They never rise above sketches to become full, short, real, short stories. But they they contain a lot of the religious imagery, images of the scary forest, things like that, that inhabited his later work. Mm -hmm. Do you think that his his viewpoint that man is alone in the universe, did that point him toward nature? Or it seems like he was also writing about urban settings. Did he feel like, for example, Maggie, uh, who is living on the streets, is? do you see that same theme running through that story as well, or that novel? I do. And na- nature against man is also one one of Crane's themes, that basically we are alone there's no in a godless universe. Nature doesn't care. Uh, he sees people in opposition 
to nature, the little man, the tall man. Hmm. Right. And then something, let's sort of pivot toward the Red Badge of Courage. Something bothered him about war in the fiction that he was reading. What was it that he was objecting to and wanted to correct? Well, first of all, he was born in 1871. So there were a lot of Civil War veterans around Mm. where he lived, where he grew up in New Jersey. He was always, as a lot of boys are or were, enthralled by war stories. And he had had an ear. He had a great ear. He was a born writer. So he was taking this in and really thinking about a war story since early childhood. I'm sorry, I forgot the rest of your question. I lost lost the thread there. What was the other part of it? Well, he seemed to object to the war stories as they were being written. There was something absent in them that he wanted to correct. In 1893, he was at a friend's studio, an artist, just hanging around. And there were a lot of old copies of the Century magazine there, filled with stories about the Civil War. And he was reading them to pass the time. And there was a day when he just threw them down and complained that they write about the externals of war. Mm. But nobody told how it felt to be. How how do they feel being in a war? And that really got him started on writing a war story. Mm. So by externals, you mean the troops went over the hill and then the, ho- the cavalry arrived and they brought up the left flank and, and so on. It's sort of the, the classic metaphor of generals moving pieces around on a map rather than the view from within the soldier's mind. Exactly. He did pick up a lot of external details about troop movement and the life of the soldier and what they ate and all the waiting around, things like that. But they did not tell how it felt to be in a war. Yeah. And he just was determined that he could do it. And he could. Do we know if he was peppering his teachers and the other Civil War veterans that he had access to, if he was asking them for their uh, recollections or trying to get them to dig deep into their memory? And was he... Was he coming at it that way, or was he just using his powers of empathy and imagination to say, well, I know what it's like to be afraid. I'm sure this is what it would have been like to be a soldier facing battle, for example. I don't know that he ever asked any of his teachers, but he did listen to these Civil War veterans, and I would assume that he asked questions. But, you know, when men have actually experienced combat, And I know this a little bit because my father was a career soldier in the army. They don't want to talk about it, let alone brag about it, unless they're brain damaged or something. They don't want to get into the nitty gritty. They don't want to have to relive that. So Crane both listened and absorbed everything he heard like a sponge, but also, as you suggested, drew on his own experience of fear. Everybody knows what it is to be afraid. Yeah. Right. And he drew on that. And I think he drew on his, his playing sports, touch football and things like that as a kid. Yeah. As a young man, I should say. Right. 
And it seems to be just his approach to a lot of his fiction. When he was writing about the Bowery, for example, it's some of the same desires for truth to say, this isn't just a an academic exercise, or this isn't just about statistics. We can talk about what it really feels like to be there. Exactly. He knew that that was essential, that if, if you cannot feel something and empathize with it, and you certainly don't need to literally experience it in order to do it, then the reader isn't going to be touched. The reader isn't going to feel anything. The reader will be unmoved. And in fact, he said at one point, giving advice to would-be writer, you've got to feel the things you write if you're going to make an impact on the world. Right. I know his style is often described as impressionistic, and, and people have compared it a lot with impressionist painters who were kind of ascending at the same time. Is there evidence that he was drawing from impressionistic paintings, or is this just kind of a a coincidence or that he was going through the same zeitgeist as they were, and it just so happened that he was doing in prose kind of the equivalent of what they were doing with paint? That's a really good question. I do not have any evidence that Mm -hmm. he was drawing on impressionistic painters, Mm -hmm. although he was very literate and perhaps, Mm -hmm. I, I just I I don't have any knowledge of that, but I think he was really just being himself and digging deep down. And because of the religion in his life, which was traumatizing, and because of his view of the world, he wrote very chromatically and impressionistically, as you said. Yeah. It's almost more interesting to think that he wasn't setting out to use them as the examples, although that would be very interesting, and we love finding influences like that on writers. But it's almost interesting to think that he was searching for truth in a way that they were searching for truth, and they happened to both be, I don't know, I guess I would say viewing the current state of things as not being sufficient in getting at a subjective or personal truth. I agree with you. I think that's exactly right. Mm. Okay, so his first book... Maggie did not do so well. He published it himself, and I think he was a little bit uh, depressed. He ended up giving away a bunch of the copies and and so on. It fell sort of fell flat at the time. But then Red Badge of Courage made him famous. How did that success change his life? Well, it utterly changed his life. He became world famous for it. It had a huge impact in England as well as in the United States. It was on a bestseller list. Because he had a bad contract, however, he never made the kind of money he should have made. But that was it. He was world famous at the age of 24. Mm. And in a lot of ways, that was not a good thing because he established himself as a war writer. That's all people wanted him to write about. Oh, right. And he got pegged as a war writer. He, did, he, he actually ended up writing some very good tales of war and reporting, but really was more of a novelist mm-hmm. than a reporter. Yeah. And it, it's very difficult when your first book is The Red Badge of Courage or To Kill a Mockingbird, <laughs> yeah. something like that. How do you follow it? The expectations are impossibly high. And then because people just want more of the same thing, you may not feel as free to explore. 
experience to experiment, I'm sorry, and stretch yourself in new directions. So he did. He wrote some marvelous short stories and novellas and things. But he also wrote a lot of hack work after that. Right. So when he met these, especially these writers in England, I mean, Joseph Conrad and H.G. Wells and people like that who admired him, wanted to meet him, were, were they, did they regard him as as sort of a savant or a, a peer of theirs? Did they look at him as a young and, and excitable and kind of a force of nature? Or was he, you know, valued for his artistry and his literate qualities, I guess I'd say? <laughs> what was their attitude toward him? Oh, yes. They greatly admired him. H.G. Wells, whom he met in England, thought his work was magnificent, unsurpassable, that Crane was beyond dispute the best writer of our generation, Wow! and that his death was an irreparable loss to our literature. Joseph Conrad, who to whom he was the closest mm-hmm. of the writers, later talked about how the Red Badge produced a sensation in England, that it detonated with the impact and force of a shell charged with a very high explosion. And also, Joseph Conrad, who visited Crane and his common-law wife, who stayed with him, actually was reading with him. I'm sorry, Crane was writing, Conrad was reading, and had the chance to observe him at work for some hours, which is rather unusual as writers go. And he greatly admired his discipline, Crane's discipline, his work ethic, and how little rewriting that Crane did, and later called Crane the greatest of the boys. Because Crane, in addition to being a marvelous writer, was a very charismatic personality and a beautiful talker, quite arresting. People who heard him tell the, the true story of the open boat actually thought it was better than the written version oh, of the, of right. the open, open boat. And, I, and my own experience thinks that that's rare among writers. Very few writers can speak as eloquently as they can write that he could. Okay, so then he goes from being on top of the world to being... Uh, brought down by scandal. What were the scandals that were, I guess, uh, that he had stumbled into, I'll say? (laughs) That's a charming way of putting it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the first one was the Dora Clark affair. She was the prostitute who was accused of soliciting when she wasn't. And Crane not only stood up for her when she was arrested, but actually in a trial against a He was a corrupt cop, but still, he was advised not to do it, that it would ruin his reputation. He did it anyway because he felt it was the honorable thing to do. And he was a defender of truth in in that way as well as in his writing. And that really wrecked his reputation. Hmm. And he really could not go to New York after that without fear of being arrested, ended up having to be an expatriate because of that. Mm. And he drank and smoked and consorted with rather seedy characters to get at the real thing, of course. And so there were a lot of rumors and, and lies, too, about his personal habits. Right. So he would say, in his defense, he would say, I'm doing research. 
And I think uh, <laughs> a lot of people kind of say, well, that's what that's what people always say when they get caught. <laughs> well, of course, he would have been telling the truth if he said, I'm doing research, which isn't to mean that he didn't shack up with prostitutes. He was a young man, and why not, right? Right. He ended up leaving America yeah. with a woman named Cora Taylor. This was after the Spanish-American War. Was it after? Yes, I think it was, but it might have been before. In Florida. They left for Europe together because she was legally married to another man, an Englishman who would not give her a divorce, and they couldn't get legally married. So they presented themselves as married in England as Mm. Mr. and Mrs. Crane. Mm. And they were successful in that? Mostly. There were some people who knew the truth, but people were more uh, less puritanical about that sort of thing in England than they were here. Yeah, that was the question I was going to ask, is how Mm -hmm. did they have that much more respect for him as a writer, or would that have just been the case? They were just a little little less strict about that kind of thing. I think both. Uh, There were other writers who had common law wives, and I, I can't remember the name of one at the moment. But... I'm not sure if they respected him more as a writer there than they did here. Maybe they were less jealous and threatened by him as a writer because, you know, that too provoked a lot of rumors and lies, this cutthroat competition. Yeah. But he was also not afraid to break the rules and write about things he wasn't under assignment to write about and be casual about deadlines. And as, as one, one reporter said of him, he was known to have shortened the life of a certain managing editor. <laughs> this was in the United States. So he didn't care. He was going to do it his way. Yeah. Do you think he was happy? Does it seem like he was going through life eager about the next adventure or was he kind of scrambling and one step ahead of his creditors and and not sure how he was going to scrape by and and was it more of a uh a struggle i see him as being unhappy which isn't to say that he didn't experience joy he certainly did but i see him as someone who from childhood on was absolutely certain that he was going to die young. He also, I see him as somebody who didn't feel well a lot of the time. There are so many descriptions of him Mm. in his parents' letters to, to their parents and to his mother's parents about their concerns about his health. And there are many, many descriptions from friends of his and fellow writers about how poorly he looked. Mm-hmm. how thin he was. He he had this very thin build called a thysis in tuberculosis, which is one of the characteristics of TB. So he didn't feel well, except when he was on horseback, for mm-hmm. instance, and in the great outdoors. He was actually a superb horseman and rider, and he loved to ride. And it's an interesting thing he had in common with Theodore Roosevelt, who was a sickly child because of asthma and would ride and did everything he could to build himself up. But Crane was always broke, 
he was his, by his own admission he had, he managed his success like a fool. He was very foolish with money, and he and Cora were very extravagant. And in those later years, as you suggested, he was just barely staying a step ahead of his creditors. So he was under huge financial pressure, and that, that's why he had to write a lot of hack work instead of more stories like Blue Hotel and The Open Boat and The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky and The Monster. He just he didn't have the luxury of taking his time, and that was partly his fault, mm. in large part his fault. And then he headed to the sanitarium, and he must have known death was near... Do we get the sense? Was he writing about it? Was he talking about it at all? Did he face it with courage or, or resignation or frustration? Or was he kind of in denial about what was in store for him? He actually, um, this was after the Spanish-American War, where he picked up malaria. Not a good thing, even if you have not had tuberculosis. Um, He had pulmonary TB also, I should say, which typically appeared in childhood. He consulted a famous TB specialist, Dr. Trudeau, in America after the Spanish-American War, who wrote a very revealing letter to Cora, Cora Crane, as she was known, uh, about activity in the lungs which suggests scarring from earlier disease. Mm. So I think there's no doubt that Stephen Crane, who always thought he was going to die young and knew that he was going to die of TB. And he faced it very bravely, actually, when he was failing. He was telling friends, I'm done for, that's it. Uh, Putting up a brave face in front of Cora, who couldn't accept it, and was really quite noble and selfless in those last months of his life. He he tried to arrange some financial help in England for Joseph Conrad. I think that was the last letter he dictated when in those last months of his life. And he was thinking about Cora, who dragged him to the Black Forest in Germany, Badenweiler, uh, in, in a vain attempt to save his life, when in fact the trip alone almost certainly shortened his life by months and increased his suffering. He had a terrible abscess in the bowel by then. So I would say he faced it bravely and unselfishly mm-hmm. and nobly. Yeah. So you, like a lot of biographers, have uh, spent years with your subject. Did you feel the same way at the end as you did at the beginning? Did you enjoy your time with Stephen Crane? I did. I I admired him at the beginning. I was in awe of his writing. I ended up admiring him even more, mm. except the way he handled money. Mm. I was just <laughs> in awe of him. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that, that did him in too. It wasn't just the TV. Yeah. In fact, um, A.J. Liebling wrote a wonderful essay about Crane in the early 1960s, I think, for The New Yorker disputed that Crane had actually died of TB. He said he died of worry about money, Mm, (laughs) you know, the the great worry that afflicts so many men. And there was a lot of truth in that. Mm. But And that got to be very wearing for me as a writer because he, he wrote letter after letter appealing 
to one of his brothers for financial help. He used his literary agent in England as a banker. He and Mm. Cora both did who was out of pocket. Who does that? <laughs> Maybe yeah. you do that for the for the writer of the Red Badge and these great short stories. But he was scrambling and always writing, doing the best he could, and I admire him for that. But they were incredibly extravagant, and that was not right. I, I think he lost a bit of integrity in the way he was always trying to get more money out of people. But Really, in the big matters, he was a brave man physically and emotionally mm. and intellectually. And he was dictating his last novel uh, almost up until his last breath. Mm. So he was a true writer and dedicated to his art right up until the end. Okay, well, let's leave things there. The book is called Badge of Courage, The Life of Stephen Crane. Linda H. Davis, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? My thanks to Linda H. Davis for joining me. Don't you want to read some Stephen Crane now? Maybe we'll have to read some of him. We haven't done that in a while. Read an entire short story. Let's put that on the list. And speaking of lists, we have episode number 400 coming up. Mike Palindrome's going to be here. We're going to look back and look ahead. Listeners and History of Literature podcast Instagrammers provided a list of all the episodes they would like to hear. Mike and I make our picks and offer some thoughts. That's coming up next episode. Oh, and Dylan Thomas... And another best of episode. Should I keep that one a mystery? Let's see. And Goethe. And more Kafka. And a zeroing in on the late 1960s and early 1970s. And Kierkegaard and Tagore and Basho and Walt Whitman. The white whale, so to speak. Lots of good stuff coming up. Elizabeth Bishop. Oh, what a sadness there. And... An overview of what is American literature with a very special guest and more goodness besides. Okay. (laughs) I'm (laughs) just... Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.